As of today, former President Trump and all of his 18 co-defendants, all of them in the Fulton County conspiracy case, they have pleaded not guilty to racketeering and other criminal charges. So unity, I guess. Beyond that, though, these 19 defendants are not exactly marching in lockstep. Five of Trump's co-defendants have filed to have their cases removed to federal court. And the arguments they are trying to to make to ensure that that happens, those arguments do not look good for the former president. Take, for example, three of Georgia's alleged fake electors, David Schaefer, Kathy Latham and Sean Still. Now, they have all said in their court filings that their cases belong in federal court because they were just, quote, acting to assist the president or acting at the direction of the president. Now, those arguments might help these three folks in claiming they were de facto federal employees, which weird if true. (laughs) And then maybe that will help them argue that they shouldn't be tried at the state level. But wow, does that argument not help their co-defendant in all of this, Mr. Donald Trump? It is essentially, judge, we were fake electors acting at the direction of the president. We were we were federal fake electors, judge. Meanwhile, Trump's own chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is making the argument that he was just doing what his boss wanted. And again, that does not exactly look good for Mr. Trump. In a hearing last week, Meadows was asked why he was so very invested in making sure the fake electors met. Mr. Meadows answered, I knew I would get yelled at if we had not, as in not arranged the meeting of the fake electors. Well, yelled at by whom, Mr. Meadows? By the president of the United States. Oof. About a full fourth of Trump's co-defendants are trying either a I was just following order strategy or the very novel I was just trying not to get yelled at strategy, both of which directly implicate former President Trump. And then Trump and five of his other co-defendants are trying to abandon ship altogether. They are trying to have their cases separated from the others, each man for himself or herself, sort of. Now, there are a bunch of different arguments here. Ray Smith, who is a former Trump campaign attorney who's been charged in all of this, he argues that the Georgia case, a case alleging a vast criminal conspiracy, that from Mr. Smith's perspective, it involves too many defendants. The case is too Byzantine. It is too complex for the jury to comprehend. Mr. Ray Smith argues for that reason, the court should split the defendants into little clumps of defendants so that they can each have their, quote, Bite-sized cases, like cupcakes and mini cupcakes. One is bite-sized, the other is not. Okay, but there are other things apart from these requests. There are the severance requests from defendants like Trump himself and his former lawyer, John Eastman. They both are arguing specifically that they want their case split off from any of the defendants who are set to go to trial on October 23rd. They both claim that that date is way too soon. And there is no way their defense could be ready that quickly, which is, of course, amazing, considering that two of Trump's co-defendants, Kenneth Cheesebro and Sidney Powell, are asking for that October 23rd date and demanding a speedy trial. Then there is Sidney Powell's motion to sever her case from everybody else's because she believes her case has no substantive connection to anyone else's, which seems like a stretch given Sidney Powell's alleged involvement in the breaching of voting machines and the fact that Trump almost appointed her as special counsel to investigate voter fraud in the 2020 election. But I digress. 
Her co-defendant, Kenneth Cheesebro, also filed a motion to sever his case from everyone else's. And then he filed again, specifically asking to have his case severed from Sidney Powell's case. Because apparently Kenneth Cheesebro does not want to have his legal fate tied to Sidney Powell's, which I got to hand it to him, is understandable. The hearing for Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro's severance motions is set for tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern time. As for the five motions to remove individual defendants' cases to federal court, well, those could be granted or denied any day now. Now, if all of this feels chaotic to you, that is precisely because it is. All of these 19 defendants here are looking out for themselves. So my question is, who does this chaos benefit and who does it hurt? Joining us now are Anthony Michael Kreese, a professor of law and political science at Georgia State University, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Uh, Joyce, let me first just start with you in terms of this idea that everybody wants to cut their case off from everybody else's or with some sort of mathematical fungibility and all that. Um, What is the judge going to be weighing here as he decides whether or not um, Mr. Trump, for example, can have his case severed from the rest of his 18 co-defendants? So when you look at severance motions under Georgia law, the defendants have to convince the judge that if their case isn't severed from all of the other defendants or some of the other defendants, that they'll be prejudiced in in a serious way. And defendants typically will argue that there is evidence that is admissible against a co-defendant, but that is not admissible against them, and that it would taint the jury's consideration and that they would run the risk of being unfairly convicted. That's the sort of classic case. And we see the defendants here trying to make out those arguments. For instance, Kenneth Cheesebro saying, you know, I've never been to Coffee County. Um, I don't know Sidney Powell, so it's not fair to try me with her. I think it's very likely, though, that the judge will uh, come back with this rejoinder. This is not a charge about Coffee County. This is a charge about a RICO conspiracy. And so the issue is whether or not the defendants participated in that as opposed to whether each defendant committed every single overt act that's charged in the indictment. Obviously, they didn't all participate in all of them, and that's not how a conspiracy case works. Um, Professor Price, when when we talk about the likelihood that this is going to be a 19-defendant trial, is that— First of all, is that even in the realm of possibility? And how would that work, given that Kenneth Cheesebro has been granted his speedy trial date of October 23rd, yet we're still litigating whether he's going to go separately from everybody else? I mean, is there a chance that Donald Trump somehow has to have his trial on October 23rd? Well, I don't think there was ever a real chance that you were going to have all 19 defendants at the same time. Um, I, I think we all anticipated when we first saw the indictments come out that there would inevitably be some folks who would want their speedy trial requests and, and could potentially have a trial in in the fall. There would be others who would want to have a, a more delayed timeline, and there would be others who would cut deals um, in order to avoid trials at all. Um, and so that was always a, a huge variable, but I don't think anybody thought that all 19 was probably the most realistic uh, outcome here. And I think that the the motions we're seeing now in terms of the speedy trial motions, the severance motions bears that out. What I don't think we're going to see are 19 different trials or a number of trials in the teens. There may be a few buckets of trials 
perhaps one in the fall, one in the spring, something of that nature. Fannie Willis initially said that she wanted a, a six-month window. And, and so we'll, we'll probably find out more tomorrow in particular because Judge Scott McAfee has asked um, for the prosecution to offer a good faith timeline mm. for uh, you know, in which they could prosecute all these defendants together or most of these defendants together. So we're really going to have to wait and see what happens tomorrow. Joyce, to that end, I mean, I, I feel like I've read different assessments about whether severing your case from Trump's is a good thing or a bad thing for what we will call a smaller fish in, in this uh, racketeering conspiracy case. Does it hurt the former president to have some of his associates split off from him? Is it advantageous for them to not be tried with him? And what is your assessment about severance as a strategy to uh, get a better outcome in all of this? So unfortunately, the answer, Alex, is it depends. <laughs> it can be helpful for a smaller fish to have the bigger fish sitting alongside them and to be able to point the finger. On the other hand, when a jury hears all of the evidence about the full scope of the conspiracy and the big fish is sitting there with the little fish, then the little fish can, can run into trouble, depending on the prosecution's strategy and the scope of the evidence. So this is a, a decision, really, that each defense lawyer will have to make on behalf of their client. One more on that, Joyce, just just because Professor Kreitz was suggesting uh, the good was discussing the good faith timeline that the prosecutors are being asked to come up with. When Fannie Willis said at that press conference, when she first announced the indictment, that she hoped to have this go to trial in six months, I think a lot of people had to put their eyeballs back in their head. A case with 19 co-defendants, a case of this sprawling nature that seems remarkably ambitious. Is it so ambitious or is it actually plausible at this point? No, I think it's entirely plausible. On her end, she did all of her work up front. We know she took extra months before she sought the indictment. And she's put on full display in the last few weeks her, her readiness, her willingness to go to trial. So the more important question is whether the defendants could get all of the due process that they're entitled to in six months. And that's just not an unreasonable amount of time for each of the individual defendants to assess their situation and be prepared for trial. At bottom, this is a case about one overriding conspiracy. There are a lot of different moving parts, but six months is a long time, plenty of time for defendants to be ready. Professor, I'm struck by the chaotic nature of all this, and maybe it's to be expected when you have a large, vast conspiracy case, a racketeering case in Georgia with 19 co-defendants. But the arguments that some of these folks are making about why this should get tossed out of state court and moved into federal court, they seem far-fetched. The suggestion that fake electors, because they were working at the direction of the president, were somehow federal employees. I mean, does that pass muster in terms of a defense strategy in your mind? No, it's completely meritless. So there are a few things that are important here. First of all, is that these were not duly elected uh, electors or duly uh, appointed electors. And so this would be akin to a, a person impersonating a police officer committing some kind of tortious act or criminal act and then claiming you know some kind of qualified constitutional immunity because they were impersonating a police officer. It just doesn't work that way. But in addition to that, uh, electors are empowered by state law, not 
federal law. So uh, states could, for example, appoint their electors through the state legislature. We've had a whole entire kind of debate about that. Um, that's within the state's prerogative to do. Um, but, you know, in every state and in Georgia, we uh, have used state law to appoint electors uh, to reflect the, the majority will of the popular vote. And so they're, they're agents of state law, uh, not federal law. So there's a lot of different reasons why why these uh, these removal motions don't make sense. They don't make sense for Mark Meadows. They don't really make sense um, for, for a number of the other individuals who are trying to make these motions, but they really don't make sense for these fake electors who are never empowered by state law or federal law in the first place. Yeah, the sense, Joyce, I get from some of these um, pretrial motions is a quiet desperation, perhaps borne out in a questionable legal strategy. I do wonder, we had some reporting from CNN that Sidney Powell continues to be reportedly investigated by the special counsel's team, where she is an unnamed co-conspirator in the federal indictment uh, around January 6th and the efforts to subvert the election. She's also in the Dominion and Smartmatic voting machine cases. She's fighting a war on many legal fronts. And when we talk about the pressure some of these co-defendants are under to flip, to start cooperating, I mean, how much does that ratchet up uh, the the temperature that, that that she must be feeling and 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 the pressure that she must be under. Yeah, it's a great question, Alex, and she is certainly a defendant who has to be feeling that pressure right now. She's looking at an enormous amount of time in Georgia that she would spend in state prison. There, I think it would be very surprising if Jack Smith wasn't serious about uh, achieving accountability with the unnamed, unindicted co-conspirators, given the seriousness of the crimes that he's charged the former president with. The fact that she's still under investigation and that it's in connection with this fraudulent fundraising and that apparently there's been now some effort on Jack Smith's part to link the fraudulent fundraising using allegations of voter fraud in 2020, which were, of course, untrue, and using that to fund these incursions into computer systems in four different states that were used to count votes is really pretty stunning. If the government is successful in putting a case against Powell together on those grounds, I think she will feel an enormous amount of pressure to flip if they're frankly still interested in having her as a well, cooperating right, that's witness. The, that's the question. Has she waited too long? Anthony, Michael Christ, Joyce Vance, always great to speak with you both. Thanks so much for your time. We have much more ahead tonight, including the ways in which Donald Trump is spinning his legal woes into campaign gold and what Joe Biden is going to do about it. But first, more than 1,100 people have been charged in connection with January 6th. More than 300 have been sentenced. But today, one of those people just broke a record. We're going to explain. That's next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. 
This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. So today, some history was made. Enrico Tar- Enrique Tario, the former leader of the Proud Boys, a man who has been convicted of seditious conspiracy. Enrique Tario was sentenced to 22 years in prison. And that is a record in terms of sentencing for the January 6th insurrection. Mr. Tario's sentence is 11 years less than the 33 years prosecutors sought, but it is four years more than the sentence handed down for the leader of the Oath Keeper, Stuart Rhodes, who is set to serve 18 years behind bars. Now, before the judge made that decision today, Tario's attorneys had asked the court for leniency since Tario was not actually in D.C. during the attack. He had been arrested two days prior for a separate incident. Prosecutors rebutted that defense, saying that Tario's absence did nothing to detract from the severity of his conduct because he was a general rather than a soldier. And they explained that Tario had actively recruited the foot soldiers who breached the Capitol that day. The judge in this appeared to agree with them, and this general is now set to enter a federal penitentiary. Now, every member of the Proud Boys who has been sentenced for sedition, every member thus far, has laid the blame for what happened that day squarely on former President Trump, which begs the question, if Enrique Tario received the steepest sentence as the general of the Proud Boys— What should we expect from Mr. Trump, the Proud Boys' alleged ultimate leader here, and the man who famously told them to stand back and stand by? Joining me now is Kyle Cheney, who is a senior legal affairs reporter for Politico and who was at the courthouse today where Enrique Tario was sentenced. He has been closely following the very intricate web of January 6th cases. Kyle, it's great to have you here. Um, I was struck by the unstinting nature of the judge's remarks in advance of the sentencing. And I'll just I'll just read this one excerpt uh, to you. This is from Judge Kelly. I don't know how I don't know how close the government argues to me, how close we were to not completing the transfer of power. I don't know how close we came or didn't come, but I don't have to conclude how close to say what happened was how close to say what happened was extremely serious and a disgrace. Um, can you tell me what it was like to hear that in person or in the in the court today and and whether or not that was a surprise to hear the judge um, so sort of dismissive of the idea that Enrique Tario was somehow contrite in all of this? Right. Well, it, it wasn't totally a surprise because this is actually the culmination of five sentencings of Enrique Tario and his co-defendants who were, who were all at least charged with sedition and four of the five were convicted of seditious conspiracy. And so we've heard his, his, what the judges had to say on the attack. He thinks this is the, the America's tradition of the peaceful transfer of power ended that day. And he thinks we have to, it's going to take you know generations to rebuild it. Uh, and so he re- reiterated that to Tario, uh, but he had some extra words for Tario who he viewed and the prosecutors viewed as maybe singularly responsible more than any other person for what actually happened on January 6th. Yeah. When you talk about the singularity of Enrique Tario, I mean, I think that the defense was obviously trying to make the case that because he wasn't there, he was somehow less guilty of all of this. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about Enrique Tarrio's posture in advance of the sentencing? Because he seemed to, I mean, multiple times he issued his own mea culpas saying, I am sorry, I've tried to hold myself to a higher standard and I failed, I failed miserably. Uh, tell me a little bit more about how you saw his character change as the sentencing got closer. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting because it's the first time we've really heard him speak in these terms uh, since January 6th, certainly. Um, and, you know, I think he sounded, you know, g- genuinely contrite. But what the judge pointed out was, you know, you say you're sorry to all the right people, but you didn't say you're sorry for what or you didn't describe what you actually did. And throughout the trial and throughout even the post-trial period, he's kind of downplayed his involvement. I wasn't there. I wasn't in communication with people. And didn't really confront what the jury convicted him of, which was trying to oppose the government by force. And the judge wanted to hear him talk more about owning up to that, what he was actually convicted of by jurors. So it was remarkable to hear that contrition in his voice. But also the judge noted Enrique Tario got where he was with his charisma and ability to convince people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. So I think he was expecting a good speech from Tario and didn't really let it affect the ultimate sentence. And there was an enhancement for terrorism in this sentencing, right? Is that correct? Yes, and in each of the Proud Boys sentence got that enhancement, um, and that really reflects that one of the crimes they were convicted of, destruction of government property, is considered a federal crime of terrorism, and it comes almost automatically with that kind of an enhancement. Um, but it does also reflect the gravity of the crime, uh, and the judge said, look, this is not Oklahoma City, this is not 9-11, you know, in, in terms of the violence and the mayhem and the bloodshed, but it does have a different kind of character because it attacked the functioning of government. Yeah, I I mean, I I think that there are a lot of reasons to be following what's happened to these um, folks who have been convicted of seditious conspiracy and those who are still awaiting trial because of obviously what the implications are for American democracy and holding folks accountable, but also because the person who is allegedly at the top of this pyramid, Donald Trump, was also not at the Capitol when the insurrection actually happened, but was very much seen as directing movements allegedly, in the cases made uh, by numerous folks and in the reporting that we have. Uh, what I mean, what lessons I think we we are. It is a mistake to think of the Proud Boy and Oath Keepers trials as separate and apart from Donald Trump. Certainly, there are different prosecutors and investigators working on them. But this is the federal government's response to January 6th. And Donald Trump's looming case and his looming trial is very much a part of that. So as you look towards the way in which these judges have have been remarkably swift and serious uh, and severe in their sentencing, I mean, has it caused you to think differently about what might await Donald Trump? Well, in, in a sense, what's facing Donald Trump is, is two sides to January 6th is what happened on the ground and the and sort of the ground up attack on the Capitol. And then there's the top down stuff, which is is Donald Trump and his allies organizing and trying to subvert the election. And and those two, you know, we don't really know that they have, they really meet in the middle, but they're two sides of the same coin in terms of, uh, you know, the threat. To, to democracy that day and in the, in the weeks and months before that. So, you know, Donald Trump isn't charged with seditious conspiracy, um, but he was an ever present figure in the Proud Boys trial and someone they did say, you know, they, they, they probably wouldn't have been there if it weren't for him. So, so that was certainly a running theme. Um, and it's something that I think judges will think about, uh, you know, if and when Trump is ever uh, convicted of any of the crimes he's facing now for his election efforts. It's the same court, right, that uh, Trump will uh, have his trial in. Is that correct? Different judge, same federal courthouse. Yes. We will be watching. Kyle Cheney, thanks for your great reporting, as always, Kyle.
Still ahead this evening, what does a man with zero felony counts do when his likely opponent in a presidential race has 91 of them? How Joe Biden will Joe Biden in the age of Donald Trump? But before that, what do Christopher Columbus and Frederick Douglass and Florida and Oklahoma have in common? A lot more than you think. That's next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Slavery is as old as time and has taken place in every corner of the world, even amongst the people I just left. Being taken as a slave is better than being killed, no? I don't see the problem. Okay, so if you are not already familiar with PragerU Kids, it is conservative propaganda styled as educational material created for children by the unaccredited right-wing advocacy group PragerU. PragerU Kids entered Florida's classrooms earlier this year as the state became the first in the nation to approve PragerU Kids videos, like that one with the animated Christopher Columbus talking about slavery, as supplemental educational material for grades K through 12. And now it is heading to more classrooms. As of today, there is a second state now working with PragerU to bring this content into public schools. Oklahoma's Department of Education has just announced an ongoing partnership with PragerU Kids. In a statement, the department said PragerU will help ensure high-quality material rich in American history and values will be available to our teachers and students. State Superintendent Ryan Walters spoke with the CEO of PragerU, Marissa Streit, in an interview that was published today on the Prager website. I cannot be more excited to get this content in our classrooms, to get this understanding of American history. Um, without any indoctrination, but actually the facts of what happened so that our kids can know the principles this country was founded on. If you recall the name Ryan Walters, if that name sounds distantly familiar, it is because he is a state superintendent who earlier this summer had to walk back his comments that appeared to suggest that race was not a factor in the 1921 Tulsa massacre. But it is not just Mr. Walters and it is not just the states of Oklahoma and Florida. PragerU has been peddling this propaganda to education departments across the country and conservative leaders have been receptive. Officials in Texas and New Hampshire recently considered using the material in their classrooms, though those particular attempts have been tabled so far. And there have already been documented uses of PragerU material in California and Idaho and Ohio. So stay tuned on this one. We have a lot more ahead. 
Joe Biden do about Trump and his 91 felony charges and his millions in mugshot merchandise? Franklin Ford, the author of a revealing new account of the Biden White House, is going to join me next. Stay with us. Donald Trump has wasted no time in turning his Georgia mugshot into a multi-million dollar fundraising strategy. His re-election campaign has slapped it on coffee mugs and T-shirts and posters and coolers because there is nothing like reaching for a cold six-pack and coming face-to-face with a former president's booking shot, at least when I'm on the beach. Aside from the merch madness, the campaign is now emailing supporters and asking them to donate $35 to help save America from Joe Biden. In return for that support a limited edition mugshot poster signed by the former president. But supporters can also just go to the campaign website and buy what appears to be the same signed poster for $7 less. Now, the difference in price there may be because of the postage required to send emails. Wait a second. In any case, Trump's campaign says it has raised $9 million since that mugshot was taken, and it is celebrating Trump's status as the top choice in the 2024 Republican field among nearly 60 percent of GOP primary voters. Despite the fact that he is facing 91 felony charges across four different jurisdictions. So how does his opponent, Joe Biden, the current president and candidate, managed Trump and his mugshot coolers and his laundry list of indictments. And most urgently, how does Joe Biden, the president, govern in a post-Trump world and maybe even a pre-Trump one, too? I have just the right person to ask. Joining me now is Franklin Four, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the new book, Out Today, The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future, which is an illuminating, compelling account of the first two years of the Biden presidency. Frank, it is great to see you. Congratulations on publishing Thank day. You. Thank, Thank you, you for Thank joining you. me on set, my Thank friend. You. Thank you. First, I just I kind of wonder what you gleaned. I mean, as as we're going to talk a lot about Biden, the president, but just as as a as a political animal, um, his appetite for going into this race again for the umpteenth time with potentially even more on the line and just how how ferocious that appetite is and how much is born out of a sense of duty. Well, I think he beat Donald Trump in 2020. Yeah. And if Trump wasn't running this election, if Trump had was incarcerated or if Trump had decided that he was going to hang it up, um, then I'm sure Biden's calculus going into this next election would be probably a little bit different. Yeah. But because he views this as an existential thing and because he's got this track record and because I think in his own mind, he's arrived at this conclusion that he is the safest bet in a race. Does, Does he think he's the safest bet? I'm pretty sure he does. Because it's a sort of I, I don't self-aggrandizing, think- I mean, not self-aggrandizing, it's a sort of a self-flagellating sort of thing. I'm the safest guy, so therefore I'm going to take up the mantle. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that people who do the job that he does yeah. inevitably come to, to, to view themselves as being indispensable on some level. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I think it's really interesting to consider what would be the counterfactual. Yeah. If Biden in the middle of his term had decided he wasn't going to run, you'd have this free for all of a Democratic primary. Who knows what way that would go? Who knows what issues that would dredge up for the Democrats? 
Um, who knows how they would run against the current president? And he, any president makes a calculation about running for re-election when they make that announcement and how that has the implications that it has for their domestic agenda as it unfolds. And the real interesting thing for Joe Biden and what I chronicle in my book is that he's had, I think, a pretty successful first term. He's gotten a lot done. Yeah. But his legacy at the end of the day. Yeah turns on the question of how he performs in the 2024 election. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I got to think as Biden, who seems so unwavering in his fundamental belief of the goodness and decency of the American people. Right. That seems like it's part of his DNA at this point. But it's actually been a journey for him. It's it's an interesting part of the story. So when he came into office, his his inauguration happens in the shadow of January 6th and the very scene of the insurrection. I mean, it's just if you go back to that moment, how crazy it is to consider that he inherited this nation at that moment in time. And part of his agenda was trying to cool the nation down. And we were dominated by politics. And he intentionally, I think, started to recede a little bit and, and, and to allow the nation to breathe mm-hmm. again. And want it. And I, I, it feels like that wasn't just a sort of posture he adopted, but that almost felt like a directive to his his cabinet members. I mean, the fact, for example, that Merrick Garland didn't try and prosecute, you know, that, that there was not, at least from the reporting we have, a robust attempt inside the upper echelons of the Department of Justice to hold accountable the, the generals of the January 6th insurrection until Congress really put some pressure on the DOJ, seems to me an extension of Biden just really wanting to let that chapter fade into the rear view and not have to relitigate it. And yet here it is on his doorstep as he makes another run for the presidency. Well, so he wouldn't refer to Trump by name initially. Trump was Voldemort. He was the former guy, right? And he whose name should not be invoked. And that worked. That was his strategy for a while. And it's also important to remember that happens while he's trying to get the nation to take the vaccine. Yes. And so it's impossible to disentangle that from the pandemic response. And his big challenge was persuading the unpersuadable. Um, and then by the end of his first year, he his, his view evolves from um, one where he's talking about the better angels to one where he's making this big push on voting rights. And he compares the opponents of voting rights to Bull Connor, in effect, comparing Joe Manchin, Mitch McConnell, all these people who were his colleagues and friends to Bull Connor. And he takes this much more aggressive, bleak view of the American condition at that moment. But would you and and I, I, I know you can't jump inside the mind of Joe Biden. I remember that speech where he really starts calling out MAGA Republicans, but he's still doing this thing where he's trying to excise the poison from the broader body politic, where he's suggesting that MAGAism and Trumpism is a virus, but it has not overtaken the host. And it seems like he still believes that there is a fundamental decency in America and a fundamental decency even inside the Republican Party. I mean, right. Is that fairly accurate? And uh, if I it think is, it be, yeah, I think it'd ahead. be hard to be president of the United States and not believe in the fundamental decency. <laughs> well, of the Amer- and the but, Republican Party specifically. Yeah. Well, uh, there he's been careful. And he's uh, so to give him credit, um, he held out hope that he could pass bipartisan things by working with this group of 
10 or so senators who were ambivalent about Trump, who clearly behind the scenes wanted to be rid of Trump, but were reluctant to challenge him in public. And so Biden starts talking about the ultra MAGA Republicans. That was, right. that was his phrase, ultra MAGA, when he got the focus group reports and he was looking at this. And it was in order to emphasize that distinction. And indeed, after he, coining that term and, and framing things in that way, he got the chips bill passed. He got gun legislation passed. He got a whole the pact bill. A lot extension. of stuff passed. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot to talk about. So we're going to take a quick break. But I do want to ask you about how in how Joe Biden, who still believes in the decency of the American public and the, the decency of Republicans who are not ultra MAGA, that he's running neck and neck in a poll 46 to 46 with Donald Trump. So stay tuned. We have much more to discuss including why a former top aide to President Biden once had to admonish President Biden that he was president and not actually prime minister. Those details are next. Stay with us. Here's a quote from Franklin Foer's new book, The Last Politician, about the first two years of the Biden presidency. If there was a lesson that President Biden extracted from the first year of his presidency, it was that he'd spent too much time trapped in senatorial minutiae. Of course, he loved it. Ron Klain once felt compelled to chide him, chide him, you're not prime minister, in his quest to extract Biden from the legislative weeds. But Biden painfully arrived at the realization that his deep involvement was time-consuming and worse, counterproductive. By taking the lead in negotiations, the president elevated the stakes. He pressurized the conversations when they actually needed space to breathe. And there was no way that he was risking deep involvement in another round of negotiation that could go sour and make him look like a chump. Franklin Four is still with me tonight, Frank. Um, <laughs> looking like a chump is something no politician ever wants to be. But I was surprised at how pointed and how focused uh, Biden was on as, as someone who seems so selfless. Of course, he's a political animal. He knows that impressions matter, but that he was focused on his own sort of reputational damage in these legislative negotiations. I mean, it's his presidency. Right. It's his legacy that was at stake there. And so in the middle of the negotiations over the Build Back Better package, where he was like, oh, so close to getting Joe Manchin over the line and yeah. ex expanding the social safety net in a profound generational transformational sort of way, you know, it flopped in this spectacular fashion when Manchin went on Fox News Sunday and pulled the plug. And yeah. so I actually think that moment is a relatively selfless moment because Biden was so deep in the weeds of those negotiations. He'd bring the senators into the Oval Office. They would be with him for two or three hours at a time as he tried to charm them, wheedle them, you know, bring them aboard. And it was a really difficult thing. No majority leader would be able to pull that off on their own. And then yeah. he took the lead and became the face of those negotiations. So I think pulling back, it's one of the things that surprised me about Biden is that there are these moments. I always thought of him when I came to the subject, I didn't have the highest regard for him. I had a very conventional Washington view of the guy that he was a senatorial blowhard who was very naive in his faith and bipartisanship and kind of watching him bob and weave and navigate these episodes, I was actually kind of impressed by his ability to shelve his ego when that's what the strategy required. Well, but I am, I mean, 
to some degree, he kind of goes back and forth in terms of that strategy, right? Because debt ceiling negotiations, he's on the phone with Kevin McCarthy and it's nobody else, right? It's yeah. the president and the Speaker of the House trying to avert financial calamity. So clearly he believes that sometimes it's warranted, right? Yeah, And, and he that, loves it. And, well, that was actually, and, and he's, and, and that's an instance of him being really good at it, right? Well, sure. Yes. And, and he was, likes the strategy when it works for well, him. Well, I mean, what he did, what he did there was he brought McCarthy in and Biden's strength as a politician is that he's got as a guy who's very empathic. Yeah. He's able to read the psychology of the person sitting across from him. And I think pretty quickly he was able to size McCarthy up and see, like, this is where the guy's insecurities are. This is what his bottom line is. This is what I'm going to be able to get. And if I can just send McCarthy out to the White House driveway to look like he's owning the negotiations in public, then I'm going to own the negotiations in private. I do wonder if you think he still stands by. I mean, if he still has empathy for a man who is basically kowtowing to the right flank of his party that is suggesting impeachment hearings for President Biden. I mean, do you think that that empathy extends to this day? I mean, I think empathy is maybe the wrong word. It's it's the seeing their humanity. No, it's it's the ability to see things from their perspective. And so you're dealing with you know Xi or Putin or any number of foreign leaders who are Modi who are who are you know jerks and terrible human beings in most regards. You still have to deal with those people, and so you still have to be able to kind of figure out how their minds work. Yeah, do you think that there's empath- that empathy, that ability to understand the workings of unsavory characters' minds extends to Donald Trump? I want to, I do have to ask you about the question that I teased but going to break, which is when Biden sees himself tied neck and neck in a poll at 46-46 with Trump in a matchup for 2024, of course, this is poll is just a snapshot and a moment in time, and yeah. I don't want to put any more weight on it, but I would assume that enter, that, that, I would I can't imagine being Joe Biden, who has worked so hard to be so diligent and preserve institutions and see himself in a head to head against someone with 91 felony counts. Yeah. And that the American public is split down the middle on the two of them. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a hard thing to look at. Um, Do you think he understands Trump's? I mean, do you think he in some way respects Trump's appeal to the base? I just wonder how you think of him. No, I think that at the end of the day, he thinks that Trump is a malignant bully. I don't think that there's any hedging on that. And he's been he's been consistent and clear in yes. public on that. But he is also consistent and clear about trying to win back parts of the Republican Party that have otherwise been forsaken. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's been that's been his strategy. Right. And I well, in as we talk about the way in which he governs in the next two years and maybe the next six, if he's lucky and wins reelection. Do you think that the Biden White House has learned a, any particular lesson about how to sell its message to the American public, given the pretty outstanding number of legislative accomplishments they've had with the thinnest of majorities. So this weekend, he gives this Labor Day speech, which is the first time that he frames things in a populist sort of way. One of the mysteries to me about the Biden presidency is that so much of their agenda delivers on all of these things that Trump has talked about, whether it is trade or going hard against monopoly or infrastructure. Uh, he's he hasn't framed things in a way where he paints the Republican Party as an elitist, phony, baloney party. And, yeah. and this is the first time that he's done that. And it does connect in the end of the day to Trump believing that he's above the law. The whole thing is a scam. And Biden 
has to present himself as the one who's genuinely delivered on all this stuff that they talk about. Well, he has a lot of talking and speaking to do. I couldn't even get to the part about the Dobbs decision, but that is something the Democrats want to run on. But you detail the real crisis of conscience that Biden has as a Catholic about going full bore on reproductive freedoms. I think that that has changed over time. When Dobbs dropped, I think it took him a long time. And this is consistent with some of the themes that we're talking about. I think it took him a while to understand the radicalism of the Dobbs decision and the radicalism of the Republican Party's approach to abortion. We're not in a 1980s, 1990s debate here about limits on abortion. This is about eradication. And so it took the case of that 10-year-old girl to really in Ohio. drive it home for Biden. And I think he hasn't had too many doubts about it since then. Well, I should hope not. <laughs> Franklin Ford, thank you for making the time. Thank you. The last politician inside Joe Biden's White House and the struggle for America's future is out now. That is our show for tonight.